welcome. Thank you for coming back to the Fundamentals of Faith Sunday School course. We are looking at Salvation Part 1 today and got a lot of good things to talk about. If you have questions, if it's quick, you can raise your hand during the lesson, but if it's a longer question, hold it to the end. That way we can make sure to talk about all the things we need to talk about um, in the lesson today. But let me pray and we'll get into it. Lord God, your salvation is so great. I pray, Lord, that we would see it afresh today. And Lord, we would see especially how wonderful it is, all the things that you do in salvation. How many of you be able to explain it and attune our hearts, Lord, to be able to listen and to be impacted by this truth? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As I said, Fundamentals of the Faith, Salvation Part 1. That's our topic for today. We talk a lot about salvation as Christians and in church. We're going to talk more about it today. And to get us thinking about why this is an important topic for us to focus on, I want to start off by asking you a somewhat strange question. If our clicker will cooperate. It was working, and then when I started, it decided not to work. I think it's a little temperamental. Well, I'll just tell you the question, and maybe it'll get on the screen. The question is, what truths from the Bible do some Christians say that you should not mention in your evangelism? What truths from the Bible do some Christians say you should be careful not to include in your proclaiming the gospel to win people to Jesus? What's one of them? Yeah, Leela. Okay, God's sovereignty and election. What else? Eric? Hell, God's judgment. What else? Sin. Okay, so questions having to do with free will and sovereignty, yes. What else? Yeah, I think you hit a lot of the main ones. Sin, miracles, hell, God's judgment, God's wrath. The exclusivity of salvation, that it's only in Jesus that people are saved. Repentance, persecution, and the cost of following Jesus. And certainly God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, why not mention these truths if they're in the Bible? What's the reasoning? It's going to offend people, and why is that a problem? Okay, yeah, so certainly it's going to challenge what a lot of people think naturally. It's going to offend them, but again, why is that a problem? Because they won't want to get saved. That's the issue. You're going to turn them off from coming to Jesus. You give it these uncomfortable truths. You'll just be unco- you'll come across as old-fashioned and judgmental. People won't like you. People won't listen to you. And worst of all, they won't get saved. They won't commit to Jesus. They won't make a decision for Jesus. These are heavy doctrines. These are uncomfortable truths of the Bible. You can mention them later. But let's get them into the kingdom first. Let's talk about the things that are more comfortable. Let's talk about love, prosperity, heaven. That's going to be more effective, more enjoyable. That'll get people to come to Jesus. That's the thinking that you sometimes hear, or maybe even sometimes think yourself, when it comes to evangelism. But you know what's interesting about this advice is the example of Jesus himself in the Bible. Considering the uncomfortable truths that I've mentioned to you, these forbidden topics, which of them did Jesus raise in the Bible with unbelievers? He certainly raised repentance. Is that the only one? Of the list I gave you, how many from that list? All of them. He talked about all of them. And what about the apostles? Which of the forbidden topics that we've mentioned did they raise with unbelievers? All of them, again, and if you're curious about that, you can just do some more Bible study. But yeah, all of those topics, God's sovereignty, God's judgment, miracles, they talked about them all with unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles. So why is there such a discrepancy between the way that Jesus and the apostles evangelize and the way that many Christians want to evangelize today? Now, that's a question that can have a number of answers But one important answer that I want to point out for you right now is that clearly there is a profound difference between how some Christians today understand salvation, that is, how God saves a person and what role man has 
in salvation and what Jesus and the apostles understood. There's a clear difference in the understanding of salvation in many Christians today and what Jesus and the apostles understood. So that means we need to make sure that we understand. If we are to evangelize faithfully, as we have been called to do, and perhaps if we are to be saved ourselves, we must understand the fundamentals of salvation according to the Bible, which is why we're looking at it. We're going to talk about this topic in two weeks. In overviewing the Bible's teaching on salvation, we can divide it into two main categories, what God does in salvation and what man does in salvation. This week, we're just going to focus on what God does in salvation. Next week, we'll look at man's side. And to be more specific about our agenda today, we're going to first review just a little bit about man's condition that requires God's salvation. We'll see how God's salvation is a guaranteed and connected process. We'll investigate what it means for God to foreknow. What's God's foreknowledge? We'll answer why God chooses to save at all. We'll consider the connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And then finally, we will overview the order of salvation from God's perspective. That's a lot to do. If we can't get to all of it today, we'll pick up some of it next week. That's all right. We'll see how far we can get. But let's start by talking a little bit more about man's condition. Such a temperamental little clicker. Okay. There we go. Well, there are several parts to what happens in salvation. How much does God do? When it comes to salvation, what percentage of salvation is accomplished by God? 100%. Why? Why must God do it all? Why doesn't man have anything to contribute to his own salvation? Because he's dead in sin. This is something we've already talked about in this course, right? Mark, in the, in the talking about Christ's work, went over this, but we just want to review it a little bit. Man was in great need of Christ's work because what was and is man's state outside of Christ, he is hopelessly corrupt and lost. He is dead in sin. He is spiritually unable to do anything. Think of what we hear in Romans 3, 10 to 12. I won't ask you to turn there, but just think about those verses. How many people are naturally good and without need of God's salvation? None. How many people are seeking God on their own? None. How many people understand the truth about God and how to become saved on their own? None. These are all emphasized in that passage of Romans. There's none good. There's no one who seeks for God. Or think of Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. I think Mark definitely went through this one. Think about all the different chains that have bound a person that bound us before we came to know the Lord prevented us from doing anything related to salvation. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were caught in the same course of the people of the world. We were firmly under the authority of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We were driven always to indulge the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath. We were born to destruction, even as the rest. Now, how can anyone bound with those five chains ever come to God, ever find his way to salvation? And the answer is, he could never. He could never. Now, what Christian doctrine, what Christian doctrine summarizes the biblical truth about man's state before God's intervention? Total depravity or radical corruption. If God does not intervene to save men, how many people will be saved? Zero. Would that be just of God? It would be, but would that be terrible for mankind? Absolutely. But here's the beautiful revelation of the Bible. I might just have to give up on the PowerPoint. <clears throat> here's the beautiful revelation of God's Bible. God has chosen to intervene to save the human race. And specifically, he has chosen to elect, to choose individuals from the human race to be saved, to know God, to inherit eternal life. This is God's doing, and it comes down to God's choice. And don't misunderstand. Salvation, our rescuing from sin, our deliverance from death and the penalty of sin, salvation is not merely a process that God kickstarts while man does the rest. Okay, nice. That's not right. 
I want us now to consider the connected process of salvation. And this, you can turn to a passage of the Bible. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. Romans 8, 29 to 30, these two verses come after one of the most famous promises of the Bible, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love, love Christ, to those who are, or love God, those who are called according to his purpose. That last phrase is what leads right into verses 29 and 30. Those who are called according to God's purpose is explained a little more in these next two verses. So let's read them, Romans 8. 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this was one of the passages from the homework. Notice the phrase, he also he also appears four times in this verse. But who's the he? God. God also. What's significant about connecting the actions, the verbs here, with the phrase he also or God also? What does that tell us about salvation? Yes, that it is a connected process. Whatever God did in the beginning... He also continues until the end. God did all the actions. And what is it that God did? Well, let's briefly look at each one of these verbs. It says, those whom he foreknew. What does it mean to foreknow? Okay, glad you said it. Okay, nice. You mentioned the Jeremiah verse. We're going to come back to that. But foreknowledge. Uh, glad to connect it with another verse that says, known before the foundation of the world. God knew before the foundation of the world. He also predestined. What does it mean to predestined? Whoa. Go back. Don't give away my stuff. Okay. What does it mean to predestined? Yeah, it's to determine beforehand, uh, to ordain, to make sure it's going to happen. And this is what God did for those whom he foreknew. Notice it says that he predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. These people were predetermined to predetermined by God to become like Jesus Christ. And those he predestined, he also called. What does it mean to be called? Say that again. Okay, chosen. All right, so what kind of call is this? Well, let's just get a basic definition here. Call to be commanded, to be drawn after. And specifically here, that would be to be drawn after Christ. And is this a general gospel call or is this an effectual internal call? We're going to talk more about that difference in just a second. But considering the link with the other verbs here, this must be referring to an irresistible internal call of God. God commanded, he drew after, he called those whom he foreknew and predestined. And those whom he called, he also justified. What does it mean to justify? All right, so given a nice theological definition according to the scriptures, it is to declare righteous. It is to pronounce as righteous, acceptable before God, free from sin's penalty, free from sin's guilt, free from God's wrath, righteous, acceptable, justified. God did this for those whom he foreknew, predestined, and called. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, it says. What does it mean to glorify? Okay, does have to do with the end, does have to do with heaven. Okay, it does connect also with becoming more, even fully conformed to the image of Christ. But again, we can make this a little bit more basic. To glorify means to exalt or to lift up in honor. And it says God did that for those whom he foreknew. Now notice what verb tense are all these verbs. Past tense. What's the significance of these being spoken of in the past tense? It's already done, and yet we don't see ourselves fully glorified. We don't see ourselves fully conformed to the image of Christ, so how do we resolve that? That's right. From God's perspective, this is set. This is a done deal. This was established before time began in eternity, before the foundation of the world, as Glenda said. 
There's no uncertainty about this salvation process with God. It's, in a sense, already done. It's already done. We're going to see it fulfilled. We're going to see it manifest, but it's already set. It's a done deal. It's a package deal, really. Whoever God has chosen, whoever God has called into salvation, will for certain, according to these verses, receive all this. And from whom? From themselves, by their own effort? No, from God. He also. He does each one of these things. Theologians sometimes call Romans 8, 29 to 30, the golden chain of redemption or the golden chain of salvation. This chain shows us not only that God is sovereign over the salvation of every saved person, it comes down to his gracious choice, but also that every part of the process is God's work and is guaranteed. There is no one who was foreknown by God who will not fail to be saved, sanctified, and glorified. It's pretty amazing. Now, here's where someone might say, though, wait, God simply foreknew who among men was going to choose him. This is how God's election unto salvation works. He chooses those who choose him, or rather who would choose him. God's looking in eternity past down the corridor of time. He's looking at all the people. He sees who's going to choose him, and then he responds to them. God really responds to man in initiating the golden chain of redemption. Once he says, yeah, that guy's going to choose me, boom, he's now part of the chain. This is what some Christians say. But this position is not faithful to the Bible as we can even tell from what we've already seen in the first part of our class. We started today by considering man's natural state of sinful corruption. If God looks down the corridor of time to see who would believe without his intervention, how many people is God going to find? None. Zero. No one does good or seeks for God. Romans 3 again. So the fact of radical human corruption already shows us that this proposed idea of God's foreknowledge cannot be correct. And we could also add in what we've already seen about God's attributes. Greg taught on this. According to the Bible, God is not simply omniscient, doesn't simply know all things, past, present, and future, but he determines all things. He upholds all things by his sovereign power. Thus, God foreknows because God foreordains. If he doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. Man does nothing unless God ordains it, including belief. But we could add one third. Hey, this thing is clicking without me clicking. All right. We can even add a. Stop that. Okay. We could even add a third reason. We can just. Oh, okay. It's like it has a mind of its own. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> I didn't realize there is somebody who has a mind of his own, and he's helping me. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Um, but if we just look at actually the word that's translated foreknowledge, the Greek words translated foreknowledge or foreknow in the New Testament, we would see that God's foreknowledge is not, as some Christians say, simply looking ahead to who would believe in God on his own. Consider this passage itself. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is an unbreakable chain, right? There's no one who is foreknown by God, as indicated in this passage, who will not also be predestined and conformed to the image of Christ. Yet if God's foreknowledge simply means knowing beforehand, then doesn't God simply know all people beforehand? I mean, that's how the view of salvation according to God responding to man, that's how it works. God foreknows everybody, he sees who's going to believe, and then he elects those people to salvation in response. But if that's the way that God foreknows, then would it not justly follow from Romans 8.29 that every human being is going to be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because God foreknows everybody, and the chain of salvation cannot be broken. Whoever is foreknown will be predestined, will be called, will be justified, will be glorified. So is everyone going to be saved and glorified by God? Certainly that makes nonsense out of verse 28. And it contradicts the multitude of other Bible passages that indicate that not everyone will be saved. So just from this verse, we know that foreknown cannot simply mean that basic definition of to know, to know before. 
as used of God in the New Testament. But this isn't the only passage that shows us this. What about some other passages? We can go to the next slide. There are only seven New Testament occurrences of the verb foreknow or foreknowledge in the New Testament. This is from the Greek word prognosko, prognosko. Kind of sounds like prognosticate, right? Our, our English cognate. In two instances of this verb in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.17 and Acts 26.4 and 5, prognosko indeed has the sense of simply knowing facts beforehand. Say, oh, Dave, doesn't that contradict what you were just about to try and prove? Ah, well, crucially, these two passages, they refer to human foreknowledge, what man knows beforehand. The other five passages, including Romans 8.29, they all refer to God's foreknowledge. And I want you to look at these passages with me and tell me what you notice in common from these verses. We've already read Romans 8.29. We've noticed about that. But let's go to the next one, Romans 11.1-2. Romans 11.1-2. It says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Let's stop right there. Who or what is said to be foreknown by God here? His people, and in particular, this context, which people? The people of Israel. Paul goes on to prove that God has not utterly rejected his foreknown people, Israel. How does he prove that? Okay, he will talk about how, yes, even in this passage, all Israel will be saved, but even more locally, verse 3 and following, he says, we know that God has forsaken his foreknown people. How do we know that? First of all, there's the Old Testament reference to Elijah. Remember, God tells Elijah, you think you're the only one left who's following after me? I told you, I've reserved a certain number of people. I forget it was 7,000 or 700. 7,000, okay, thank you. (laughs) 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal and who have not kissed his image. I've kept them for myself. I will keep them for myself. Those are people of Israel. He says, look, that's what God did in the past. Clearly, he hasn't forsaken his people, whom he foreknew. In fact, even now, what is there? A present remnant. Where is it? Uh, Verse 5. Even now, there is a present remnant reserved according to God's gracious choice. So God has not forsaken his people, whom he foreknew. Let's go to another one. Acts 2, Acts 2, 22 to 23. So just backing up a tiny bit there. If you could uh, advance it just one, Chris. Acts 2, 22 to 23 says, this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. All right, who or what is foreknown by God here? Jesus Christ, in particular, in his crucifixion, his intercessory death. What concept is mentioned right alongside God's foreknowledge? His predetermination, his predestination. All right, going to the next one. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2. First Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter introduces... His letter in this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
right? Who or what is foreknown by God here? Yeah, they are strangers. These are scattered people. Say that again. Okay, they are elect. Um, are these believers or unbelievers? Yeah, these are Christians. These are Christians. He, he may not use the term believer here, but talking all these descriptions, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, chosen. These are persecuted Christians. That's why they're scattered, and that's what the rest of First Peter is going to talk about. Hey, you Christians who are suffering unjustly, let me give you some encouragement and instruction. But he says, you're foreknown by God, you scattered Christian believers. And notice what concept again is mentioned right alongside God's foreknowledge. Chosen. Well, sanctification, yeah, we'll talk about that. Chosen. You were chosen by God. You were elected by God. And then even in the same letter, we have one more. The, the final instance of this term, 1 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Actually, we'll read a little bit of verse 19. They're saying, You were not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. One more time. Who or what is foreknown by God here? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when was he foreknown? From before the foundation of the world. So let's put this all together. What do you notice about how the Bible speaks about God's foreknowledge? What's in common in these five verses? Okay, Glenda's making a good observation. So notice, first of all, that he foreknows people. When the Bible speaks about God's foreknowledge, it specifically is about foreknowing people, not events or facts. Certainly he knows that too, but in terms of the way that God uses, or the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, it's talking about foreknowing people. And which people? It's a very particular set of people. It's Christ, Old Testament saints or Jewish saints, and scattered believers. These are all people who belong to God. God foreknows only his people. Doesn't speak, the Bible doesn't speak about him foreknowing any other people. Therefore, foreknow in these passages cannot simply mean to know beforehand, because he does that with all people. So what must foreknow mean when it comes to God? That's right. It's an intimate kind of knowledge. It is even the kind of knowledge that sets one apart to God. And Glenda mentioned this concept previously by alluding to a certain verse in Jeremiah. And I'll bring that out to you now. Jeremiah 1.5, this is what God says to Jeremiah as part of his commissioning Jeremiah as a prophet. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's the same idea, even though the word foreknowledge isn't used there. God doesn't simply say, oh, I knew about you, Jeremiah, just like I knew about everybody. He says, I knew you in a special way. And I knew you in such a way that I set you apart from others, even to be a special servant for me. It's the same idea when we talk about God's foreknowledge in salvation. And consider how far this sense is from the idea of God responding to man's free will. God didn't foreknow all people and events so that God could then choose some for himself. No, God's foreknowing is God's choice. He was setting apart for himself those he would love. As I heard one preacher say, to be foreknown by God is to be foreloved by God. And if you know Jesus Christ, that is true of you this morning. You were foreknown by God. You were intimately known by God, set apart by God for a special relationship with him before the foundation of the world. Not because God saw something worthy in you or lovely in you in which he had to respond, oh, that one's going to believe in me. Nope, nope, you were corrupt. 
had nothing to offer God, but he foreknew you according to his gracious choice. He said, that one I'm setting apart for me. So then I hope you see the primary truth that I'm trying to emphasize today. God is completely sovereign in salvation. Man needs, he requires God to do it all, and God himself testifies that he indeed does it all. But why does God do it? If he's not responding to something in us, why does God save? Well, just to be super clear, the reason is not because God needs something from us. God is not lonely. God is not in need of worship or worshipers. God is not missing some glory that we are somehow going to give him. His name, according to the Old Testament, is Yahweh, after all. And what does Yahweh mean? Uh, you're actually thinking of a, a different title. Yeshua uh, means salvation or savior. God is savior. Yahweh is savior. But Yahweh, that corresponds to the Hebrew word he is. And it's commemoration, the revelation that God gave to Moses when Moses said, who am I going to say he sent me? Tell them, I am who I am. He is sent you. Now, I am who I am is an expression of eternality, independence, self-sufficiency. God needs nothing from anyone. He needs nothing from outside himself, and nothing outside himself can compel him to act. And besides, when it comes to things outside himself, God says they already belong to him. That's why he says in Psalm 50, verse 12, Psalm 50, verse 12, if I were hungry, he's talking to the people of Israel, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. I don't need anything from my creation. He does not have a need outside himself, so why does he do it? Why does he elect? Why does he save? Well, what do the scriptures say? Just sample a few passages for you. Psalm 115.3, and I'm going to do this quickly, so don't feel like you have to turn there. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 43, verse 11, Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. 2 Timothy 1.9, 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, a little bit of verse 4, Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. All right, let's summarize those verses if we can. What does the Bible say in terms of explaining why God chooses to save? Okay, it's for his glory. What else can we say? Okay, according to his mercy and grace, or to expand that just a little bit, according to his character. It's who he is. Can we say anything more? Yeah, Ian. That's right. That was what he willed to do. It was his good pleasure to do so. This really, I think, summarizes the whole biblical teaching of why God chooses to save. It was according to his own will. It was in accordance with his perfect character. And it was for his glory. Not the increase of it, because it's already infinite, but for the further enjoyment of it. For the further enjoyment of who God already is. Why did salvation have to be this way? Why save certain persons and not other persons? Well, the specific answer to those questions is only known to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. The only answers that God does give us is what I've already stated. God did it. God saves according to his good pleasure in accordance with his loving, saving, kind being and for the manifestation and enjoyment of his own glory. And what is the proper response of the redeemed to such a truth. 
That's right. Thanksgiving praise. Ah, even the trembling exclamation. Oh, God, why was I chosen? Why was I chosen to receive your salvation? Thank you, God. But now here's the part that might really throw us for a loop. Even though the Bible declares God's sovereignty over salvation, it is not apologetic about that. It is not hiding that fact. God declares it in his Bible. He's sovereign. He even declares that no one will be saved apart from his gracious intervention. The Bible also declares that all sinners are responsible for their own sin and for their willful rejection of Jesus Christ. He says, if you don't choose to follow me, well, then you will be damned. You will be condemned. Indeed, let's move over to talking about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Again, I'm sure I look somewhat ridiculous. The Bible presents the gospel invitation as open to all. And God promises, and this is a true, sincere promise, that any who come to him in genuine faith and repentance will be saved. There's no one who comes to God, and they're like, God, God, please let me in. He's like, sorry, you're not one of my elect. He says, you come to me in faith and repentance, I will save you. And I'll just give you a sample of verses for this. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to Yahweh. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes. Whoever believes. Romans 10.11-13 Romans 10.11-13 For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an invitation. This is a sincere invitation that is open to all. If you will come to God, meet these conditions, call upon his name in repentance and faith, you'll be saved. And if you don't do this, If you end up condemned, damned forever in the fearful punishment of God for sin, you have no one to blame but yourself. It was your own foolish, rebellious choice. And again, this is all over the scriptures. John 3.18. John 3.18. You can advance just two clicks there. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You don't want to believe in them? You're going to be condemned. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. Speaking about God's judgment against those who persecute believers. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Is a matter of obedience or disobedience. If you do not obey, verse 9 goes on to say, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. One more. We could add more, but just one more. Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. You didn't want it. You know, it's interesting. If you just look at Judas, the betrayer of our Lord, he's an example of this strange connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. For Jesus says of Judas in Luke 22, 22, Luke 22, 22, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. This is ordained. It's going to happen. God's sovereign over this. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Matthew and Mark add in their version of this statement, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas betrayed Jesus because it was ordained, yet God is just to judge Judas for doing it. 
for choosing it. Woe to that man. Of course, the natural response to this is to say, but how is this right? How can God hold people responsible when he ultimately is sovereign? They didn't turn because you didn't intervene. How is God just to do this? Well, some teachers, some believers have endeavored to explain in long detail and careful logic why God is still just to do this. And I don't, I don't think that's evil. I don't think that's wrong. I actually heard a good version of this. I think I've recommended it to you before. Pastor Mike Riccardi at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles preached a sermon one time called God and Evil. And the subtitle is Why the Ultimate Cause is Not the Chargeable Cause. Very helpful, very clarifying. Uh, you can look that up on Google if you are so inclined. It's at gracechurch.org. But that's the longer answer. The short answer I can say right now. How is God just to do this? Even if we cannot fully understand, the Bible presents God as just. Both of these things are true. God's totally sovereign, and yet he is not unjust to hold man responsible for man's own choices. God is sovereign, yet man has real agency that deserves the recompense of God. These realities may be in tension, but they are not truly in contradiction. We are to accept them both by faith since they are both in God's perfect scriptures. And if that answer is not good enough for you, just remember Romans 9, 19 to 21. God is like a potter and you are like clay. You cannot demand an explanation from God or tell him that he's done wrong. Is clay going to do that to the potter? What does clay know? If you do find yourself in this position of demanding explanation from God, you only show yourself to be ridiculously arrogant. God's complete sovereignty does not nullify man's real agency and responsibility, but it exists alongside. And you know what's really interesting? You see this literally in the words of Jesus. Listen to how Jesus affirms God's sovereignty and salvation in Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, the things related to the kingdom and salvation, from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? Jesus says God must choose to reveal himself to people so that they might be saved. And if he doesn't reveal himself, they're not going to be saved. They won't come. All comes down to God's sovereignty. Yet that statement is followed by one of the most beautiful gospel invitations in the Bible. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. This is an invitation. This is an invitation calling for a response from the will. Calling for a choice. And from whom? From man. From people. And if you don't respond, if you don't choose Christ, if you don't come, you have no one to blame but yourself. It was your own choice. It's what you wanted. But if you do come... Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? God does. It's just as Jesus said before. Nobody comes unless the Father reveals himself. Or rather, the Son chooses to reveal the Father to him. This is a great mystery, a humbling mystery, but one that should lead us to awe and praise. God does it all in salvation. Now, speaking of all, can we be more specific from the Bible about all that God does for man? Well, yes, yes, we can. And with our final topic today, we're going to look at the specific steps or the order of salvation. Theologians sometimes call this, by a fancy Latin term, the ordo salutis, which just means order of salvation. And there's some debate on the exact order and number of steps because the Bible speaks of many of these happening at the same time or very close to one another. But for those who take a Reformed Protestant view of salvation and not an Arminian one, there's general agreement on the order as I presented here. 
So I'm going to list the steps of salvation, and I'm going to briefly define each. You can advance the next slide. And I'm also going to give you a few supporting verses. And by the way, Romans 8, 29 to 30 does give a condensed version of these with its five, but this is a slightly expanded list. So what are the steps and what is the order of all that God does for man in salvation? Number one, election or predestination. You can advance these as I, as I say these, Chris. Before time or the world began, God chose who he would save and who he would pass over and leave to judgment. His choice was not based on anything in us, but only in the mysterious will and good purpose of God. Ephesians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Number one. Number two, atonement. In time, God sent his son to live a perfectly righteous life and to die a sin-bearing death so that all those who believe in Jesus would be completely saved from the holy wrath of God that is due sin. The son not only accomplished this redemption mission, but he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to show that his work was accepted and is effective for all who believe in him. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Number two. Number three, gospel call. God arranges for each one he has chosen that the gospel of Christ will be preached to that person. For in God's wisdom he has ordained that people will not be saved apart from the hearing or reading of the gospel, exhorting sinners to repent and believe in Jesus. Romans 10, verses 14 to 15. Romans 10, 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. God uses the gospel. Number four, the inward call. Though God arranges his general gospel call to go to many people, even all peoples of the earth, the preached gospel will not prove effective for a person unto salvation unless God also works in a person's heart to call and draw that person toward himself. And when God calls inwardly, that call is always effective. It will not be resisted. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When God calls in the heart, the gospel proves effective to save. But how can that be? How can a spiritually dead person respond to God's inward call to believe? Well, number five, regeneration. Regeneration. God not only calls inwardly, but also by his spirit, he breathes his own spiritual life into a person. So that person is reborn, he's cleansed in heart, he's made a new creation. And now he is both able and quite willing to respond to God's internal call to salvation in Christ. Titus 3, 4 and 5. Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we've talked a lot about this recently from John 3. And where this true regeneration of heart takes place, there will always be one response from man, and that is number six, conversion. Conversion, also known as repentance and faith. Conversion is the event in which a person turns from his sin and his self, and he turns to Christ. A person repents he believes and is saved, experientially crossing over from the domain of darkness under the, God, under the wrath of God into the kingdom of Christ and inheriting and experiencing eternal life. But can man take credit for this step? Can he take credit for his own conversion, his responding to God in repentance and faith? No. For the Bible says that even these are the work of God. They are a gift to those that God has chosen. Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And 2 Timothy 2.25, speaking of how leaders in the church are to conduct themselves with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, 
if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. God must give the faith. God must give the repentance. Even though this is a part that man participates in, it is all the work of God. And upon conversion, God immediately acts to fulfill the next four parts of salvation. Number seven, justification. Upon repentance and faith, God justifies the believer. That is, God pronounces that believer legally righteous and acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's work on the believer's behalf. This is another way to say that God imputes or he accounts Christ's own righteousness to the believer. And that's the only reason that believer becomes acceptable. Romans 5.1, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Something else, number eight, adoption. Upon repentance and faith, God also adopts the believer and endows them with all the rights and privileges of a child of God, including the father's loving care and listening ear all throughout that believer's life, as well as the internal inheritance that belongs to a child of God, which is ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, God's Son. John 1.12, John 1.12, But as many as received him, talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now the final two parts of what God does in salvation are begun now in part, but they await the future for their complete fulfillment. Number nine is sanctification. Sanctification. Upon repentance and faith, God positionally sanctifies or sets apart a believer as totally holy to God. However, practically speaking, the believer is not yet fully holy in his thinking, words, and actions. Thus, upon conversion, God begins the process of progressive sanctification, or making the believer gradually die to sin and live to righteousness to become more and more like Jesus Christ. This is a process that continues throughout the rest of a believer's life, but it is brought to completion at death, after which the believer is entirely sanctified and freed from sin forever. Praise the Lord. Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And then finally, number 10, glorification glorification. Upon repentance and faith, God immediately exalts the believer to a position of highest honor, an abundant blessing in Christ. However, the believer only experiences this glorification in part. When a believer dies, or when Christ comes, the believer will experience in full the promise of glorification, in which the resurrected believer will dwell with, enjoy, and reign with God forever. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Speaking about what God did for those who were dead in sin. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's it. These are the steps. This is the order of salvation. But perhaps some of you veteran students of the Bible might ask, but where is union with Christ? You can advance one more, uh, Chris. Where is union with Christ? When in salvation is a person spiritually joined to Christ so that he is in Christ and Christ is in him? Bible does talk about this. That's a good question. Where does union with Christ fall in the order of salvation? You know what the surprising answer is? All of it. Here's something marvelous. When the Bible speaks about what God does in salvation, each of the steps that I've outlined here are frequently described as taking place in Christ or in him. Just to give you some examples, Ephesians 1.4 says that we are chosen or elected in him, in Christ. Romans 6.8 describes believers as having died with and being raised with Christ. 1 Peter 5.10 says that believers were called in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says one is made a new creation in Christ. Repentance and faith, of course, are exercised in Christ. 
1 Corinthians 6.11 says that both justification and sanctification were accomplished in the name of Christ, that is, in Christ. Ephesians 1.5 says believers were predestined to adoption through Jesus Christ. And 2 Thessalonians 1.12 says that, or talks about Christ being glorified in believers and believers being glorified in him. Do you see? The truth is, as Ephesians 1.3 says, every salvation blessing has been poured out on us in Christ. From our being elected in Christ before the world began to our glorification with Christ and in Christ in eternity. Ah, Though God does everything in salvation, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the specific means that all the benefits of salvation are given to us. Even before we know and experience those benefits when we come to believe in Jesus. And this, brethren, is why we love, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, He is our Savior, He is our treasure, He is our life. Every good thing we have, excuse me, my nose is losing it. Every good thing we have, we have in and through Him. How amazing that God has poured out his love on us in Jesus Christ. So there we have it. What we've seen today is that God indeed does everything in salvation. He is completely sovereign over who will be saved and when. And every part of salvation is energized by his power and guaranteed according to his will. Now that doesn't mean that we do nothing in response. No, as God works in us, we are obligated to respond, and we will, if we are his chosen. What is man's part in salvation? How does a man, how does a person become saved? And how does he know he is saved? Well, that's the questions that we're going to address next time. Have a couple of minutes. Any questions about what you've heard today? Yeah, Lila. Yeah, isn't that so crazy and mysterious? Lila mentioning Ephesians 1.4, saying that we were chosen in him. I don't quite fully understand this, but we were in him even before we believed. We didn't experience in our lives the benefits of being in him, and yet it was a fact. God chose us in him. We died and were raised in him. That is amazing. That's why Jesus Christ is so precious. Another question or Mark? Yeah, yeah. Those are both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are both good observations, Mark. And I don't have time for application questions, but that was one of the things I was going to explore. I started today by asking about evangelism and things you should not mention. But clearly, if all this is true, that has massive implications for how we evangelize. We don't have to shy away from the truth of the scriptures. Rather, we say what God told us to say. And we know that it will prove effective for those that God has chosen. Now, that doesn't mean we become callous or annoying or um, lazy about the way that we evangelize. But it does mean that we can trust God's way to do the work that God's chosen to do. And if we go outside of that, we may actually produce something that's not really the work of God. 
And when it comes to assurance, yes, if you realize that salvation is all of God, that should give you great assurance that your salvation cannot be lost. For those who take the view that God, oh, he responds to you, and that's how he chooses to elect. Well, what's consistent in that theological system is that you can lose your salvation. Because if you stop believing in God, well, maybe God will stop believing in you. God will unelect you. And some will then will actually teach that. But that's not, that's not the case. I think what's also connected with that is a misunderstanding of how people are actually saved. We're going to talk more about this next week. The human side of it, when people think it is a prayer that they prayed or some other work that they did, then that, rather than assuring them, it, it results in a lack of, or it can often result in a lack of assurance because they say, well, I don't know if my prayer was right or if it was good enough. I've got to pray again. And that's why you have people who are constantly going forward and getting saved because they, their thinking comes down to uh, work that they do. But we're going to talk more about that next week. But good comments. Thank you for your participation today. Let me close this in prayer. I hope you'll be back next week. Lord, it is as your word says in John 3. When we come to you, we do not boast and say, look what I did. I'm, I'm one of the ones who found God. But we say, no, all of this was God's work. Christ, you found us. Lord God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for electing us in him before the foundation of the world. Thank you that we can never be taken, or we can never be parted from him or from his love. But thank you for salvation. We don't know why you chose us. We don't know why you chose us as opposed to other people, except that it was part of your good character. It was according to your good purpose and will, and it is for the enjoyment of your glory. So all we say, God, is thank you and help us to live worthy, to put your name as high before all people in the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.